0: Hi, I'm Malcolm Burnley, host of WHYY and Princeton University's AI Nation. We've got a bonus episode for you about artificial intelligence that comes from a different show produced at WHYY called The Pulse. We're about to hear from scientists and thinkers who argue that we should look at AI not as a threat or competition, but as an extension of our minds and abilities. You can find more episodes of The Pulse and AI Nation at WHYY.org, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is The Pulse Stories about the People and Places at the Heart of Health and Science. I'm Mike and Scott. Artificial intelligence has become part of our lives in so many ways, sometimes you don't even notice it anymore. I remember the first time I got an ad on my Facebook feed for the exact same pair of shoes I had just messaged my friend about. It was weird, it felt intrusive, like I was being spied on. But that kind of thing gets less surprising over time. I mean, I've had the same beige area rug follow me everywhere for weeks. I don't even see it anymore. AI recommends movies and books, it helps you find the best way to work, it filters out spam email, we've all gotten used to that. But every once in a while, you still get a moment where AI surprises you. Like, what? A machine did that? Emergency room physician Avir Mitra had one of those recently. He had ordered a CT scan for a patient, and he was looking at the results.
2: I see the image, looks okay, and then I get to read, and I'm like, oh, this is a good read, and at the bottom it says this was an AI read. This is an AI interpretation. And will be verified by a radiologist like tomorrow or something like that. I was like, wait, what? And that that definitely scared me because I was like, oh, so now I, you know I'm looking at the uh, every time I get one of these reads, I definitely go and look at the image myself, double check the AI. The thing is, though, he's never found a mistake. Every single one of those reads that I've seen from AI is, has been right.
1: Perfect batting average. As intelligent machines get better at what they do, and as they do more and more things, it opens up so many new possibilities. It feels like the dawn of a whole new age. But there are still nagging questions and fears. Will AI take over, take away jobs, make us irrelevant, or lead to some terrible mistake, you know, the robot apocalypse? On today's episode, we're taking a look at AI in three different settings. Medicine, work, and warfare. And what its presence means for us, mere humans. Alright, so physician Avir Mitra was looking at the perfect handiwork of smart machines in interpreting scans, and he couldn't help but wonder... If AI does such an amazing job in some parts of medicine, what are the aspects of care where humans have the upper hand? Jed Slayman picks up the story from here.
3: The patients Aviramitra Mitra encounters in the ER
2: come in as scared blank slates. My first job is to stabilize unstable patients. So I have to be able to recognize when someone is, I guess you could say, actively dying. First step, figure out, is this person
3: dying? If so, figure out why and how.
2: I would say there's a formula that we follow, and it's good to stay consistent. That way you don't miss anything. There's a lot of times where you can think pretty algorithmically. It's the part of his job that's the most
3: machine-like. He's got to gather data and follow it logically. The vital signs, the patient history, any current medications, the physical exam. Crunch all those variables together, and what medical emergency do they add up to?
2: I would say there's a good amount of the day that you could sort of be on autopilot.
3: You see a lot of the same predictable stuff. Shortness of breath, abdominal pain, vomiting.
2: I could picture a computer walking through a
3: decent amount of things, you know. But then there's what Avir calls the curveballs. When a patient checks off every logical box for one condition, but it turns out to be
2: another. Every every time I'm on shift, there's something that happens that you're like, oh, well, that's not how the textbook (laughs) said it should go. Avir trains fourth-year
3: med students and watches them struggle with this kind of thing all the time.
2: We had an older Asian man come in, and he's, and he's like, I, I'm feeling basically okay, you know, we're talking through a translator. The man
3: doesn't feel all that bad, some abdominal pain. It's low and on his right
2: side, which could point to appendicitis. But usually you should be pretty tender there. It should really hurt when you press on it, you know. He should be saying that he's he doesn't want to eat. He should be saying, "I feel very sick." um but he's not saying any of that when we're pressing on it, he's kind of not grimacing much. It looks more like nothing, maybe the stomach
3: bug or indigestion.
2: So the student sees this patient and comes back and goes, "You know i it's not appendicitis because he's still eating food, and you know he's not that not in that much pain um." I think we can probably send him home. For some reason, though, Aver disagrees. And I'm probably uh, overreacting and I'm probably being crazy. But there's something about this guy. I want to do this whole workup.
3: Which, by the way, is no trifle. Workup means all night in the hospital, expensive tests. It could all just be for gas. Aver asks for all these extra
2: tests anyway, and he looks him over. And this guy not only has appendicitis, but it's perforated. In other words, it's kind of exploded, and it's, and it's like a serious emergency. And so, you know, surgery comes down, and they rush him off to the OR, and he does fine.
3: His student was doing everything by the book, by the obvious data, but his conclusion could have killed that man. So what was Avere picking up on that the student
2: was not? I'm getting this sense that, you know, this, this is a guy who wouldn't come to the hospital unless he was dying. Like, this is a guy who I, I looked at his prior visits, like, he doesn't, go, he doesn't go to see doctors. He doesn't come to the hospital. He's stoic. He, uh, so for him to, to, for him to feel bad enough to come to the ER and, and say, yeah, it hurts a little bit, like, I'm realizing that, th- that like, I probably would have gone to the ER five days earlier than this guy and been crying. You know what I'm saying?
3: Avere followed his instincts, his gut feelings, and they were right. And this is something that machines don't have yet. I talked to Mohamed Ghassemi about this. He's a computer scientist at Michigan State University. The first thing you gotta understand, he says, is data.
4: I'm using data here in the broadest possible sense. Everything you see is, is data for you personally. Everything you taste and touch and feel and experience is a kind of data that you're ingesting through your sensory equipment on your body. And your first reaction to that I think it is safe to say is your gut feeling.
3: Mohammed and his team discovered that human doctors and AI ordered different amounts of tests for patients when given the same clinical data. So why the difference? Mohammed thinks something beyond the clear cut data was guiding the doctors. How the doctors felt about the patients factored into their decision making in a way the machines couldn't replicate with just the raw clinical data. The team figured out how doctors felt about patients by looking at their notes, the little bits of subjective impression they get when dealing with patients.
4: If a physician says the patient's heart rate was XYZ, well, that's kind of redundant, right? Because you already have that in a database somewhere. So it's irrelevant if the, if the physician says that in his notes. If they said the, the patient's heart rate was XYZ, you know, that's not good. The that's not good part is actually what's relevant there
3: that's not good, is a negative sentiment. Something like, he's got a lot of spirit, that's a good sentiment. Mohammed's team figured out the sentiment doctors had about patients related directly to how many tests they ordered.
4: Actually, it's sort of like an upside down U in its shape. If the physician is very, very positive about the patient, they tended to order less exams, ask for less treatments, and so on. Similarly, if the physician's were very, very negative, they also ordered less exams. It was when they were in that middle place, let me say on the fence, that you saw much more exams being ordered.
3: When they had the least amount of data available to them, like Aver in the ER with a patient he's never seen before, the doctors Muhammad studied relied the most on a kind of gut feeling. Scientists have studied this feeling, quantified it even. Another word for it is intuition. And it's not magic. As best as science understands it now, it's the brain using information and logic that it's learned over time, and data it's acquired unconsciously to make decisions automatically. But isn't this exactly what intelligent machines are supposed to do? The machine learning at the heart of AI?
2: Avir was thinking the same thing. Because it's like, what is intuition other than subconscious pattern recognition? That's happened, you know, that's what experience is. That's why people trust doctors with uh, gray hair. I'm, I get better with time because it's not about how smart you are, it's about how many things you've seen. Why did Avir get that feeling about the patient with
3: abdominal pain? Maybe because he's seen that patient before, or some version of him. A patient who bucks the algorithm completely to have the opposite diagnosis the textbook would suggest.
2: And and I've just learned this by getting burned on this before.
3: He's been fed enough data. But couldn't you do the same thing to a sufficiently advanced
2: computer? A computer that can be fed so much data, one could say would probably have intuition. You know, it doesn't know why this is this way, but it's seen millions and millions of this presentation and it is this way.
3: I took this idea to Muhammad, the computer scientist who showed the way gut feelings were aiding human doctors' decision making. He's actually developing a way to teach machines how to use something like that gut feeling that the human doctors used. He can encode the sentiments the doctors had from their notes into the data streams the machines get. And he thinks they'll get closer to human decision making.
4: As you collect very, very large sums of information, if you give AI models access to that and time to process it, uh, yeah, probably their ability to approximate what human beings do uh, will become better, and therefore the need for human beings to get involved in in uh, decisions will decrease.
3: But these intelligent machines, they'll still need humans, even if they replicate all our gut instincts. Mohammed says machines need to learn from us, for example, from our mistakes. Human doctors do things in slightly different ways. Let's say in prescribing medications, the doses vary. Some are more optimal doses than others. Muhammad calls this normal variation in the way doctors work, noise.
4: If there's no noise in the system, which human beings for better or worse kind of introduce, you can't learn what's optimal because you've only ever tried one thing.
3: I tell Avir this, that machines need our mistakes, our imperfections. But where I heard human error, Avere heard human innovation. Let's say a doctor in Ohio tries something new. Wrap a sprain this way instead of that. Reattach a tendon with two sutures instead of four.
2: And so she tries it this way and then tells her colleagues about it. And they start doing it. And then the next thing you know, like, Ohio's doing this procedure in this way. And then they write a paper about it and it gets picked up in California. And they start doing it this way. When a doctor
3: does something other than the most optimal, but it works really well, we don't call it a mistake. We call it a breakthrough. For Avir though, a lot of this AI stuff is way, way in the future. There are much more basic challenges in healthcare he sees every day in the real world present we live in.
2: The reason patients in America aren't getting the care they need is not because of intelligence, whether it be real or artificial. It's because of bureaucratic stupidness and financial things and weird incentives that lead to people dying from things that really they don't need to die from.
3: Before hospitals get more intelligent machines, Avir hopes they get more human and more humane.
1: That story was reported by Jad Slayman. We're talking about artificial intelligence and what it means for us, humans. What's the image that pops into your head when I say artificial intelligence? For me, it's definitely some kind of robot-looking thing, maybe a little bit like C-3PO from Star Wars, even though I know that's not accurate at all. But artificial intelligence, smart machines? its all a little bit squishy. We use those terms in different ways to mean different things. I talked about that with Pedro Domingos. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Washington and the author of The Master Algorithm, how the quest for the ultimate learning machine will remake our world.
5: Artificial intelligence is trying to get computers to do things that normally only humans can. Things like vision, understanding language and speech, navigating in the world and and manipulating things, reasoning, solving problems, common sense knowledge, learning.
1: But it seems like when people talk about AI, they don't always mean the same thing.
5: Definitely. The problem is that anytime something is successful and gets hyped, then everybody kind of jumps on the bandwagon. So these days, a lot of things get called AI just because it sounds good. So if you're a startup, you'd better have some AI in your business plan (laughs) or the VCs might have second thoughts about it. What drives AI these days is machine learning. And at a basic level, you know, simple statistical algorithms can be thought of as very simple machine learning. So people tend to get carried away and call things AI that aren't AI.
1: So... Could you give me an example of something that is not AI?
5: It's programs that are written by people and that just execute the same simple, you know, set of steps that somebody wrote down.
1: Like the calculator on your phone.
5: The calculator on your phone is just doing basic arithmetic, Mm -hmm. you know, additions and multiplications.
1: So, not AI. Another example of not AI databases.
5: The database of employees that manages payroll and so on and so forth is there's no AI there. You know, your ATM, like your bank, right, has a database of bank accounts. There's a program running in the ATM, but there's no AI there.
1: So what would make a program, what would make that AI? So let's say I wanted to add an AI component to my calculator. What might that look like?
5: Well, Honestly, a calculator is something so simple that it's a little hard to think about how you would add (laughs) AI to it. But what do people use calculators for, right? There's, say, business people or scientists that are making calculations for some larger purpose... And AI would be that larger purpose. So you could have AI do physics. You could have AI discover new physics, discover physical laws, discover a cure for cancer, which is you know a very real example. Uh, you could have AI do some of the higher level business logic, like how should I run my bank? Here's a very real example. Credit applications at banks used to be evaluated by human loan officers who would decide, based on interviewing the applicant, whether to give them a mortgage or not, or a credit card, that basically doesn't exist anymore. There's an AI program. uh, There's basically a machine learning system that learned how to, you know, give credit and how to make credit decisions based on learning from a database. But this is actually, you know, a a computer system that is doing a job that traditionally requires a very highly qualified and competent person. So, that's a very widespread and important example of of AI today.
1: So, it sounds like AI means that the information is spit out in a new way. There is like added layers.
5: Yes. I mean, you could say it has to do with the complexity of the information processing. So AI, the name AI was chosen for the field at the conference that inaugurated it back in the 50s. And there was a vote for the name of the field, Artificial Intelligence 1, for better or worse. The runner-up was Complex Information Processing. Mm -hmm. So at some level of complexity, it starts to require intelligence. There's a more technical view of this, which in some ways is is the more correct one, which is that in computer science, there's there's problems of varying degrees of difficulty, like adding two numbers is as easy as it gets. Mm -hmm. But the really hardest problems are problems that take exponential time to solve. So you could say that something becomes AI when the level of difficulty reaches that exponential level. And you re- at that point, you have no choice but to use intelligence because otherwise you'll never get there.
1: When I hear something being called AI, are there certain questions I could ask myself to make sure this is really AI and it's not just some simple program?
5: Uh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, you can do something even better, which is to ask the question, not in a binary way, is this AI or not? But how much intelligence does this have? Mm-hmm. And, and what kind of intelligence, right? So what are the key factors here? Probably the single most important one is how much common sense does a task require? If you can do a task just by, you know, rigidly writing a set of rules that, you know, and the program doesn't know anything about the world, literally has no common sense, there's no AI there. And the other one, you know, also extremely important, is how much flexibility does it require, right? The thing about humans is that we're actually not particularly good at any given thing. It's just we are incredibly flexible. We can, you know, solve problems that we've never solved before by having analogies with old ones. We can come at a problem from different directions until we see one that works. And, you know, and computers are not very good at this.
1: But AI doesn't have the same ability to integrate a whole lot of different things. Pedro says it's important to remember that we're not competing with computers. We're working
5: together and we can use their strengths, like speed. So as soon as a computer learns one thing, every other computer in the world can know that within a second. So computers just talk to each other at a billion times the speed that people do. This is something that it's almost hard to conceive, right? There's like... Two computers can talk to each other, they can exchange more information in a second, then all of humanity is exchanging with each other by talking, right? Computers can also have a lot of memory and so on. Having said that, a lot of people don't appreciate this, but the human brain is an amazing supercomputer, the likes of which we don't have. we actually now at the point where the biggest data centers, you could say, have an amount of computing power that approaches the computing power of a human brain.
1: But it sounds like in summary, all of us could benefit from some basic AI 101 education.
5: Definitely. And this is why I wrote the master algorithm is when I felt that everybody needs to know AI. It's not just for the experts anymore. You know, think of a car, right? You don't need to understand how the engine works. That's for the engineers and the mechanics. But you do need to know where the steering wheel (laughs) and the pedals are so you can drive the car where you want it to go. It's everybody looking at their job and knowing AI 101 needs to figure out what parts of my job could I do better by using AI. AIs are extensions of us. You know, it's like power steering for the mind, right? You don't worry that the power steering in your car will decide to drive in a different <laughs> direction, right? And, and the AI is just power steering for the mind. That's, that's what it is.
1: Pedro Domingos is a professor of computer science at the University of Washington. Coming up, are you
6: ready for your job interview with nobody? You can't really have that same level of charisma when you're just staring at yourself in a screen. That's
1: next on
6: The Pulse.
3: Support for The Pulse comes from select Greater Philadelphia. With over 30 cell and gene therapy development companies, Greater Philadelphia is where the field started and continues to thrive. More at discoverystartshere.com. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable quality health care for everyone.
1: This is The Pulse, I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about artificial intelligence and what it means for us. If you're using LinkedIn or some other career type site, AI is already sending you job suggestions. But it's part of the job search and hiring process in many other ways as well. A couple of months ago, Julia Feldman started doing a bunch of interviews to get an internship. She's studying finance at Duke University. When she gets ready for one of those, she sits down at her college dorm desk. She
6: puts on a nice shirt, a blazer. And sweatpants because they can't see my bottom half. (laughs) (laughs) She sets the stage. I just recently got like an LED light and so I kind of put that in front of me and then I just put in an AirPod and stare at my computer.
1: (laughs) That sounds like standard COVID times procedure, right? But there's actually nobody there. Julia is just talking to her computer. These were all automated job interviews. A lot of companies are using them instead of first round phone calls.
6: After time, I think you get used to it, but it was a little bit of a learning curve for me.
1: So you get questions and prompts, you record yourself and send it off the company can use AI to analyze your voice and to transcribe what you said. Julia says on the one hand it's less pressure, but it's also hard to show your personality.
6: One of my biggest strengths is just being able to like connect with a person and react to their body language or their expressions and you know, kind of being able to joke around during the interviews. You can't really have that same level of charisma when you're just staring at yourself in a screen.
1: A recent study found that 50% of human resource leaders in the U.S. use predictive algorithms in hiring to sift through resumes or application videos or to identify candidates.
7: And you might be tempted to think, well, that's because they're definitely effective and definitely improving the quality of hires. And I'm not so sure that's true. What you can say is that it's definitely faster and cheaper.
1: That's Alex Engler. He's a fellow at the Brookings Institution where he studies the impact of AI on society. Alex says one problem is that AI might dismiss a candidate because they use different terms or language. Like, let's say I'm looking for somebody who has experience in audio editing
7: someone writes that they had done auditory engineering or some different combination of words that's synonymous and you as someone with higher level reasoning would have picked out that this is important and the analyzing system it may not get that level of sophistication and so if it's not you know the same words that you're writing down that you're giving the AI or, or things that it finds to be synonyms, it may or may not pick up on that.
1: But there are bigger concerns. Alex and other researchers have found that AI used in hiring can be biased, that it can actually make hiring decisions that are racist or sexist. One study found that both humans and later algorithms discriminated against people with African-American-sounding names. Or here's another example.
7: Amazon built a AI hiring system to analyze resumes and really struggled to remove systemic um, gender bias in the resume uh, analysis process and ended up retiring and and stopping to use that because it just couldn't fix the problem. And that's Amazon. That's not a, you know, podunk, uh, a random company that's, you know, known for its technical sophistication and goes to show how how complicated of a problem this can be.
1: How does that bias make it? into the algorithm, like how does the algorithm see a name and then somehow decides this person is less qualified?
7: Yeah, I mean, the most common answer to that question is the historical data. The vast majority of these algorithms are a specific type of machine learning called supervised machine learning. And all that means is there is a data set of people in the past who have applied to these jobs And what the algorithm is doing, it said, what are the common characteristics of people who have succeeded in the jobs versus those who haven't? And then it's going to find whatever pattern that is and match it up with whatever patterns they can find in the new job applicants. The problem with doing that is we live in a tremendously biased world in which if you're looking inherently at historical data, in almost all of those data sets, there's going to be systemic bias in the past. You know, a simple example, you could think of someone who is a salesperson routinely succeeding not because they were the most excellent salesperson, but because they're a white man and they were given privileged access to leads and opportunities and uh, support from, from their workplace that led to them having higher sales. And then a resume tool, which doesn't really understand that, could find cues in a resume that suggests the person is male, for instance, being in a fraternity, and then apply that in the future iterations of the model. And there, you're not finding anything valuable. You're just reproducing a discriminatory outcome that organizationally was perpetuated in the past. Now, I want to be careful. Not all of these algorithms do that, but that's the major way that you find this sort of perpetrating of past biases again in the algorithms.
1: And can you not teach the thing not to do that? I mean can, can you not tell it like don't look at that historical information <laughs> only look at current qualifications?
7: Yeah you kind of can and I'll be, uh, this is the part you have to be careful with. Mm-hmm. This is this is the, the complicated nitty gritty of the topic which is to say you can make these algorithms better. It is possible. Um, you can remove to some extent the biasing data that's leading to the problem. You can get better, more representative data sets that show success from a more diverse group of people. And you can tweak the algorithms themselves in various ways. The issue here isn't that it's impossible to do, um, though it can be very hard in some circumstances. It's that it's expensive and time-consuming to do it.
1: But it seems that despite the obvious problems and despite these systems perhaps not being all that useful... Uh, it's still a big and busy market.
7: Yep. Yeah, it's a huge market. And I think you have to be a little careful because on the whole, it's not obvious that this market is a bad thing, Mm -hmm. right? And the way to think about this is there was a big study, a meta-analysis of 28 other studies. And what they showed is that over the last 25 years, there'd been no reduction in hiring discrimination against African-Americans. And that is to say that for 25 years, the people who were interviewing other people for jobs were being pretty discriminatory against African Americans, and that wasn't getting better over a quarter century. And so we already have a problem in which hiring is unfortunately systemically biased. The question is, as we move towards these new algorithms, this new algorithmic approach, can we intervene and enable a more uh, fair and more effective set of algorithms to sort of win, even though the market incentives aren't necessarily that good. Because again, it's more expensive to make good, fair models. And we've seen some action from the Federal Trade Commission, and certainly I, among others, have been calling for more action from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to get involved, because we are going to see this become the dominant way that job candidates are evaluated, at least in part. And so it's important that we systemically improve this process before we get locked into another 25 years of systemic, this time algorithmic discrimination.
1: That's Alex Engler. He's a fellow at the Brookings Institution where he studies the impact of AI on society. We're talking about AI and what it means for our lives. Artificial intelligence could in many ways perpetuate human mistakes and flaws. But then there's always this nagging fear that it could lead to things that are worse, downright evil and murderous. A new podcast from WHYY called AI Nation explored that possibility in one of its episodes. Here's host Malcolm Burnley.
0: In 2017, Laura Nolan got pulled into a conference room with some of her senior colleagues at Google. Laura's a software engineer. She works on systems like cloud storage, and her colleague told her she needed to make some really major changes to one of her programs.
6: And I kind of said, "Why? You know, it's going to be big. It's going to be expensive. Um, it's going to take a while." And he said, "Well, it's just this, it's this Maven. It's this this drone thing."
0: Laura's colleague told her, "Expensive wasn't the problem." because this was for Project Maven, a contract with the U.S. Department of Defense. The DOD had run into a problem. They had drones positioned in the Middle East capturing video, but going through all that video and actually turning it into usable information was tedious work. They had people sitting at desks, looking at wide area
6: motion imagery from drones, and then when they would see a person, when they would see a vehicle, when they would see other things of interest, they would take note of the time and the place they got to a point where they literally couldn't hire enough people to analyze all the video that they want because they had so much surveillance. So entry machine learning
0: and technologies to the rescue. The DoD wanted a computer called Maven to be able to do a lot of this cataloging work and help them identify targets. They hired Google to make it, which meant Laura needed to help reconfigure some cloud storage to make it work.
6: I thought it was completely crazy because uh, I think at that time, Google had fostered an image of, you know, being about organizing information and being not evil.
0: At the time, there was literally a line in Google's code of conduct that said, don't be evil.
6: I'm certainly not saying that all military activity is evil. For sure that there there are sometimes times when, when force is required. But Google had very much cultivated this image of not being a military kind of organization. And then suddenly it was doing this and it was just very strange. I I honestly thought there must have been some mistake, but, um, you know, I absolutely had concerns from the
0: start. And these were big ethical concerns. Laura worried that Project Maven would lead to greater surveillance, which could have a big impact on civilians as well as people the military was interested in.
6: I don't think that people's privacy goes away just because they happen to live in a country that may harbor some terrorists. I think that, you know, we have to think about the proportionality of, you know, removing the privacy of many, many people for
0: many years but she was also worried about where technology like this could lead.
6: Drone surveillance is the first step in drone strikes. It really was this this military project that was feeding this kill chain and would lead to people being killed.
0: She says she didn't want to be a part of a kill chain and she didn't want to help develop a technology that could be the first step in a dangerous autonomous weapon, one that could identify targets and then kill them all on its own. Laura raised objections with her supervisors Not long after, word spread within the company. She and over 3,000 Google employees signed a petition saying they didn't want Google to be, quote, in the business of war. In response, Google executives said they would put out a set of AI ethical principles that would fix the problem. But when those principles came out, Laura thought they fell pretty short.
6: They do say that Google won't build weapons, but um, Maven is not a weapon system. Maven is a surveillance system that would feed into targeting systems, and it's the surveillance and the analysis is the hard part, not not the weapon itself,
0: right? That was the final straw for Laura. She was one of twelve Google engineers who quit over Project Maven.
6: Yeah, my last day it was in early summer in 2018. It was it was weirdly anticlimactic, right? You know, you just sort of end your day and you walk downstairs and you know you hand back your badge and your laptop, and you know I shed some tears as I walked out of the building. You know, it was a big part of my life and a big part of my professional development, and I was, I, was, I was sad to leave, but I kind of felt like I
0: couldn't stay, you know? Google finished out its Project Maven contract, but after all the blowback, they didn't renew with the DoD to keep working on it. Laura started to work with The Campaign to Stop Killer Robots, an advocacy group that's pushing for a ban against all autonomous weapons worldwide. A different group called the Future of Life Institute, who are also against these kind of weapons, made a video I want to tell you about. It's called Slaughterbots. It starts with a CEO, a handsome, tall, middle-aged guy, giving a presentation on a big stage. A tiny drone zooms out from the wings over toward him. Your kids probably have one of these, right? Not quite. And lands in his palm.
2: Just like any mobile device these days, it has cameras and sensors. And just like your phones and social media apps, it does facial recognition. Inside here is three grams of shaped explosive. This
0: is how it works. The tiny drone speeds over toward a mannequin on stage left, scans its face, and blows a hole in its forehead. Did you see that?
2: They can penetrate buildings, cars, trains. They cannot be stopped.
0: And things devolve from there.
8: The nation is still recovering from yesterday's incident, which officials are describing as some kind of automated attack, which killed 11 U.S. senators at the Capitol building.
0: They flew in from everywhere, but attacked just one side of the aisle. It was chaos.
8: People were screaming.
0: My partner and co-host in this podcast is Ed Felton. He's a computer science professor at Princeton University who's been studying AI for a long time. He also worked on technology policy in the Obama administration. I sent him this video. It's speculative fiction, a story put together by an organization trying to make a point. So I was kind of expecting him to laugh it off as
9: too extreme. That's not what he said. Well, uh, it seems unfortunately that it, probably will be possible in the future, if uh, probably not now. That kind of technical capability is something that we should be worried about.
0: In fact, there are a few places around the world where autonomous weapons already exist. Laura Nolan told me about a weapon Israel has called the IAI Harpy, a so-called loitering munition. It flies around a specific area and looks for radar signals it doesn't recognize. And when it finds something,
6: It does a kamikaze strike on it. So it will actually fly into the target.
0: There's also a Turkish military company that makes a weaponized drone called the Kargu. The Kargu is way bigger than Slaughterbots, but it does also have facial recognition capabilities.
6: So that sort of immediately suggests that there's an intention to use these things as kind of people hunter drones.
0: Terrifying. Ed, I'm curious, What kind of conversations was the Obama administration having about autonomous weapons?
9: When I arrived on the White House staff, there was already a pretty well-established policy that the Department of Defense had about issues around autonomous weapons. This was an issue that was understood as being a really important one to make sure that decisions about the use of force were always made by people and that we weren't going to delegate the decision to shoot at a particular person or particular thing to a machine. So that's a pretty straightforward line to draw in principle. But what it actually means in practice can be pretty complicated. One part of that is what should we be willing to do ourselves? And the other part of it is how to deal with the risk that terrorists or uh, other adversaries might have very advanced autonomous weapons.
7: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. How can we defend ourselves You know against that?
9: That's right. It's in some sense the easy part of the problem, what should we do? Because we can draw a clear moral line and then work hard to stick to it. But if there are terrible things that adversaries are willing to do or terrorists are willing to do that we are not willing to do, we might worry about our ability to defend ourselves in a world where our adversaries have certain kinds of weapons and we don't.
0: The thing is, even if our adversaries are plowing ahead with autonomous weapons – the tech isn't really there yet. Engineers still haven't even mastered driverless cars. And that's theoretically an easier problem to solve.
6: So if we look at a self-driving car, you want to get from A to B without crashing into anything. It's a relatively well-defined problem, right? The problem of an autonomous weapon has is much more difficult. It has to get from A to B, and it has to, you know, sort of loiter around and decide if what it sees is a viable target and attack it. And this is a much less-defined
0: problem. Driverless cars are meant for a much more predictable environment. Roads have rules and signs,
9: and most people are trying to behave safely. That's not true in war. In military conflict, all kinds of surprising and terrible things happen. You have an adversary who is trying to be deceptive, trying to get systems to behave in the wrong way. Uh, You have some bad actors who are willing to try to get your systems to target civilians as a sort of human shield strategy.
0: How do you create an autonomous weapon with the guarantee that it won't kill the wrong person by accident?
6: I just don't see how it can be done in any in any reasonable way.
0: Laura and the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots would like to see autonomous weapons banned entirely, an international treaty that explicitly forbids them. For now, we're covered by other treaties, like the Geneva Conventions, Though recently, the National Security Commission on AI released a report. It was over 700 pages, and it warned that, quote, AI will not stay in the domain of superpowers or the realm of science fiction, end quote. The commission recommended that President Biden not sign a treaty banning autonomous weapons. They said that this was because they didn't think Russia or China would abide by a treaty, which would leave us unprepared. I'm still left with a question, a question probably driven by too many sci-fi movies. Should I actually be worried about a robot apocalypse
9: here? Not right away. I'm less worried about an all-out robot apocalypse. I'm more worried that we're just going to lose control of all the complicated things that we're building. Uh, And we're going to be living in a world that's hard to understand and hard to control.
1: That was Malcolm Burnley and Ed Felton from the new podcast AI Nation. It's a collaboration between WHYY and Princeton University. You can find AI Nation wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, a
8: closer look at the angst so many people feel about artificial intelligence. So this assumption that robots can, will, or should replace people. That's next on The Pulse. Behavioral Health Reporting on the Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that
1: is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated health care. WHYY's Health and Science Reporting is supported by a generous grant from the Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about artificial intelligence, how it's shaping our lives, and how we feel about that. The last story we heard about AI and weapons brought up some really scary stuff. And when you're thinking about this future where intelligent machines will play a much larger role than they do now... Maybe you're picturing something like a Black Mirror episode with terrifying robots chasing you down or a super smart machine taking your job. Don't, says Kate Darling.
8: Well, for one thing, it doesn't make a lot of sense technically.
1: Kate is a researcher at MIT and the author of The New Breed, What Our History with Animals Reveals About Our Future with Robots. She says, for starters, robots are not like humans.
8: The earliest AI researchers may have had the goal of recreating human intelligence, but that's really not where we've wound up with artificial intelligence and robots. What we've created is different. And in that sense, it it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I also find it very limiting in terms of the technological determinism that it lends itself to. So this assumption that robots can, will, or should replace people that kind of permeates a lot of our conversations around robots and jobs and uh, what roles robots will play in society, that limits us because that, that shouldn't be our goal either. And we have a lot of choice in how we design and integrate the technology.
1: Does that narrative come from somewhere, though? I mean, if we look at our history of interacting with new technology and new machines,
8: where does that fear of being replaced come from? we see this fear over and over again with you know new technological disruptions in general but i think with robots and artificial intelligence in particular We tend to give these technologies a lot of agency. We have science fictional narratives in Western society about robot takeovers and robots rising up against their creators and uh, coming to replace us. And some of it is just that we have these machines that can sense and think and make autonomous decisions and learn. So of course we compare them to ourselves and we anthropomorphize them. We project human-like qualities and human-like agency onto them. How is the animal analogy better or more helpful
1: how how can we reframe our relationship with robots
8: through this animal analogy well so we've we have used animals for millennia, um, for work, for weaponry, for companionship. And the reason that we have used animals for all of these things isn't because they do what we do, but because they have skill sets that are supplemental to ours. So we've partnered with them in what we're trying to achieve. We've used oxen to plow our fields. We've used horses to traverse the earth in new ways. We've used carrier pigeons to deliver medication and mail. And we've used dolphins to detect underwater mines, which is something that we're starting to use robots for. So we've made use of all of these diverse physical skill sets and sensing abilities that animals have in order to extend ourselves. The, the point of the book isn't to say that we should be using robots in exactly the same way as animals, even though there's a lot of fun parallels that are pretty one-to-one, but rather that we have an opportunity to broaden our perspectives and be a little bit more creative about what skill sets we could develop that are new, that could supplement our own abilities even further. So if we look at one specific threat that comes up all the time, that you know,
1: robots will take our jobs... How does the animal model help us with that threat?
8: Well, it strikes me that a lot of the conversations around robots and jobs, they are about technological disruption, and that is happening. But we sometimes fall a little bit too far into this one-to-one replacement narrative, uh, which just isn't accurate because robots can't do the same things as humans for the most part. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because the, the... best and most efficient path forward is for humans and robots to work together and to combine their respective skills. But the way that the animal narrative really helps us is by seeing that even though animals have, you know, vastly disrupted the way we do things. They've disrupted farming, they've disrupted transport. And the same is going to happen with these technologies as well, but there hasn't been a one-to-one replacement so much as just a, a much more complex disruption of the way that we do things. And so what we really need to be focused on is, what economic and political systems we have in place that determine uh, what happens next, which is ultimately about human choices and political choices rather than the robots or the technology determining what happens next.
1: Yeah. And I guess when we view this as a threat, we also overlook the potential benefits. Like, you know, I don't want to pull a plow. I'll gladly leave that to the oxen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
8: and in the same way, I mean, we
1: could look at potential rather than threat.
8: Absolutely. And and there is so much potential because, you know, the the common thread in robotics for a few decades now has been that robots are best suited for tasks that are dull, dirty or dangerous. So anything that we actually don't want humans to do or that humans don't want to do. And that continues to be mostly true, that robots are very good at very rote or specific tasks and that people actually don't enjoy doing rote specific tasks and repetitive things dangerous things so it actually frees people up to do some of the more creative work or work that that people actually enjoy doing i see i see the the animal analogy and it's helping
1: me understand these issues but an animal <laughs> I guess where I'm worried about the difference is that the animal doesn't have an overlord, so to speak, right? It's, it didn't have somebody who programmed this animal to be a certain way and who can potentially control how this dog or cat functions from afar. But with these machines, there's always
8: like the person behind the machine has a lot of control. That is correct. I mean, we have to some extent designed animals and we can train animals. And so we, we have some influence over that, but that is absolutely correct. That one area where this analogy breaks down is you have robots that need to be built by people and deployed by people. And it is ultimately humans who you know may not be able to control every aspect of the robot, but have a lot of control and how the robots are designed and what they do. And so, yes, that is also precisely my concern as we move into this future, that by viewing the robots themselves as having agency. And in all of the headlines that we see, oh, the robots are coming for your jobs. Oh, a robot killed a factory worker. A robot did X. No, the robot didn't do that. The robots aren't doing this. It's people doing this. It's the humans behind the scene. It's true that now we have some unanticipated learning and behavior that happens in these systems, but that's also not a new problem. And we've had animals (laughs) that can cause unanticipated harm for many, many years, and we've had to find ways to deal with that, that don't rely on blaming the animal itself, but rely on blaming whoever had the animal in their purview, whichever human or organization was responsible for the animal at the time. So it always comes back to us humans anyway. <laughs> it does, yes. And and it's it's so funny that we have to keep saying that because... Because we love to make the robot itself the agent in this story. Kate Darling is a research
1: specialist at MIT's Media Lab. Her latest book is called The New Breed, What Our History with Animals Reveals About Our Future with Robots. (laughs) Subscribe to our podcast. We have an extra coming out in a few days. More of
8: my conversation with Kate Darling. And we get to meet her pet robots. Now I have seven baby dinosaur robots called (laughs) Pleos. I have a Paro, which is a baby seal robot, and it, it just makes these little movements and sounds. I've even heard of people taking their Roomba vacuum cleaners to play dates to play with other Roombas. Don't miss it. You can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This bonus episode comes to us from The Pulse, another podcast produced from WHYY, just like AI Nation. To hear more of The Pulse or AI Nation, go to WHYY.org or wherever you get your podcasts.